0: Welcome to Circuit Break from MacroFab, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and multi-channel balance to unbalanced audio buffers. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Doman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 401. Circuit Circuit Break from MacroFab. This week, we are joined by a very special guest.
1: Greg Norman is an American recording producer, engineer, and studio technician based out of Chicago, Illinois. In 1996, he started working at Electrical Audio, initially aiding in the design and construction of the two-studio complex in the north side of Chicago. A few years later, he built his own studio to keep up with the demands of recording projects outside of Electrical.
0: Over the years, he has recorded over 100 records as a staff member of Electrical Audio and traveled abroad as a freelance producer slash engineer. Some of his clients include Deep Trick, Guided by Voices, Godspeed You, Black Emperor, and The Breeders, among others. Greg has also designed, consulted, and installed several
1: studios in Chicago, throughout the states and Canada. He has unique expertise in analog tape machine and console design and maintenance, which has become a dying art. He also designs and manufactures custom recording studio equipment.
0: Greg, thank you so much for coming on our podcast this week. Thanks for having me. Sounds like fun.
2: I hope it's going to be fun.
1: (laughs) You you know, so in addition to your clients, I also saw on the list that Russian Circles was on there. Is that correct?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. I recorded. I used to record pretty much all the odd number records of theirs—the first, third, and the fifth—and then I missed. A, I didn't do the seventh, so um, I'm, that streak is over. But yeah, we did three records together.
1: Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, I missed them the last time they came into Denver, and I was super bummed about it.
2: Yeah, they're great. They're they're great people too. It's 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 amazing. You don't get to see that when you watch a show. They're you know they don't talk or anything like that. But like it's it's funny that meeting them in person, you're, they're just like. An avalanche of hilarious, you know, commentary and, and and entertainment. Just, just yeah, it's they're good friends of mine, and it's a lot of fun. But yeah, I, I'm amazed by how well they're doing, and it's great.
1: That's cool. So, so how did you first get into working in recording studios and working with musicians?
2: Well, like uh, in high school, I had a you know a lot. I got into the underground music scene when I was like about in my junior year of high school, and I had a batch of friends that were really into a lot of the like DIY music scene in Chicago that was, that was developing at least in in that generation that had a lot of shows happening in garages and basements and all the sorts of different places. And, uh, you know, just being in bands with my friends and, and also, you know, watching lots of shows and just made friends with all sorts of different musicians. And I had like an interest for recording and I would buy anything I could kind of afford at like the uh, music store or use section. I picked up like an old, Tascam console and a friend of mine had a four track and we would record shows you know we'd borrow a bunch of stuff and record shows with that and then release cassette tapes you know the bands would have cassette tapes and they'd release it and copy it and do all that sort of stuff and then and I went to Montana for a couple years to go to school for just to get out of the Chicago area and be by the mountains be be by nature and I, I thought I'd want to teach history eventually but like two years into it I realized I wanted to sort of pursue the recording thing and I got a Steve Albini's phone number and Steve Albini is the owner of the electrical audio studio and he's a famous engineer who recorded Nirvana and the Pixies and all that. He was building a studio in Chicago and I had friends that recorded with them and they'd given me his phone number and I'd called him up randomly just to see if he was offering an internship programs or a, sort of that sort of thing and I like lucked out at the, just the time after he bought the building that he eventually built the studio in and sort of joined in that process and learned a ton of things all during the time, all during this, I was recording bands and doing stuff on the side with just a collection of a monthly collection of broken gear and used stuff and friends gear.
0: So how, back when you were a kid doing it, I guess, uh, did you read a book or anything or just like get the equipment and just tried it? Like how did, what was that process like?
2: Well, there. I do went to like a huge school and our school had like a radio station and uh, they would have these jazz concerts and other sort of, a lot of different schools would bring their jazz bands to our school and they'd have these big jazz concerts and other random concerts. So they would try to like record that and broadcast that. And there's a little club within that school that like had a, a, you know, that was in charge of doing all that stuff and also videotaping it. And so there's like a little bit of exposure to the technical side of things and learning that uh, side of things there. But for the most part, like at the very beginning, there was just watching other people do things. Like I would go with friends to when they would record, record a demo and just sort of watch, you know, the, that engineer do his thing and and figure out like what the deal was. And but that school club was kind of handy and and just getting exposed to a recording console and a condenser mic, certain basic elemental sort of things. And then i sort of like, okay, I realize now I got to get like a console and I got to get like, you know, this kind of mic for drums and this kind of mic for, you know, singing and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I need to borrow what I can to, you know, figure out like how to make this work and not get destroyed (laughs) because I'm going to have to like pay for it if I destroy it. But yeah, as far as like books go, I don't really remember anything that was out there. And then once I was like, Uh, I? I was 19 when I started interning at Electrical when Steve was building the studio. He had a studio in his old house. And so half the time I would help do construction for money. The other half I would be at his house where he had his recording studio built in it. And that was built like totally professionally as if it was done by like a huge firm making a brand new modern studio. But it was in his bungalow house in Chicago and so it was wired professionally and, and uh, equipped professionally. And I I'd, I'd just grill him and the other engineers in there at that time with tons of questions. I also went to Columbia College for a couple of years in Chicago and sort of gravitated towards, you know, the engineers, teachers that were kind of the smartest. There's a lot of people that were just working there to make extra money and they sort of taught what they thought was right. And they didn't really like, it had kind of a, patchwork program for an audio program at the time but uh there were some really experienced people that I learned from and there's some some books about stuff but it was all really rudimentary like how to record a band in the 1970s it wasn't really like you know too relevant for what was going on at that time but that's also when I went I met a really good tech friend in Chicago who taught a class called audio measurement techniques and that's kind of like when I got exposed to like you know, someone who knew how to fix analog gear and, you know, and that sort of sparked my interest in trying to find broken gear and try to fix it up and have, you know, like a back doorway into having nice gear. <laughs> but yeah, so once I started at Electrical and at Steve's house, it was basically just absorbing as much as I could from them, from the people that I saw. And when there was downtime, they would let me play around with an experiment with things. And then also... They would let me, you know, Steve would let me borrow equipment, like microphones, and he'd encourage me to go out and screw around and record bands on my own and figure it out, and which was super cool and generous. Not a lot of people would do that. With the mics that he had, which, you know, were these world-class, super expensive mics <laughs> that I shouldn't have touched.
0: So you mentioned that you had to pay or, like, if you broke something. I'm going to guess you did break stuff then.
2: Mm. Really early on when I was, like, a, in high school, I was pretty careful. I, it's, it's shocking that I didn't destroy anything. Like the only thing I really, I just got things dirty, uh, but I didn't destroy it. There were this, the microphones and the, the stuff that I would borrow, they, they weren't really like fancy or expensive. They were just, you know, these sure 58s and, you know, like PA mics for like a club. You know, it's not really like anything fancy. Once I started in turning out the studio and working out in electrical and borrowing those mics, that's when I started sweating it because there'd be like this $4,000 tube vintage Neumann microphone that like, I really shouldn't have been taken to, you know, use anywhere outside the studio, but, uh, <laughs> it's like, yeah, to record a crappy punk band. And it's like, I could have put a, you know, used a radio shack mic for this, I think, but, <laughs> but yeah, no, I did break mics once I, you know, really got into it at electrical at the studio. There's a, surround, not surround sound mic, but it's a microphone that has four capsules in it. And those capsules you can mix and blend together to create any pickup pattern, looking up, down, left, right, all around. And it's called a sound field microphone, which was an idea in the 80s, you know, for ambisonic sort of pickup. It's it's sort of a, a trademark thing that I think the microphone company Rode owns now, but originally the company Calrick used to be known to making it. But, anyways, there's a nice, expensive microphone, and it had its own base station where you controlled all that stuff. And the microphone was, of course, really high up in the middle of this tall room. And when I was cleaning up after a session, I pulled on the cable, you know, or I tugged on the cable, which wasn't tied around the stand at the base. And it pulled from the top of the stand where the microphone was and it fell down like a timber kind of tree and slammed against the ground. And and I uh, sort of got a, a little nervous then, but we have like a policy there that was pretty forgiving. It's basically shit's going to happen. We're going to have to pay. It's a cost of doing business kind of thing. And, you know, so I didn't destroy the $4,000 microphone. I just destroyed the basket that had the, the windscreen basket for it, which, you know, is a few hundred dollars, but at least... At least it was still repairable. They were still around at the time. Now, if I broke that, it'd be really, really hard to fix. There's no, you know, there's no, no, the company has been out of business for like 20 years now. (laughs) uh,
1: (laughs) I, I, I wouldn't say you destroyed it. You just gave it character,
2: right? Yeah. There's no studio that's actually running right now that you can walk into where people are recording music, you know, on a daily basis. There should be no microphone older than 20 years old that looks spotless. If there if there is, it's kind of like a suspicious thing because, you know, if you have a microphone, no matter how valued it is, like there's a, a famous microphone that company Neumann makes. It's called the U47. It uses a tube that's made just for that microphone. I think it's worth something like $20,000 now. It's always been worth a lot of money and it's always been really valuable. But if you ever saw one in the studio, it'd be all dinged up and, you know, a little bit banged up because people used it all the time. And that's just kind of like what will happen when you're, you know, that's our best microphone in the studio. We're going to use it all the time and something it's going to roll off a table one time <laughs> and something bad's going to happen to it. But it's repairable, thankfully. Although the, the vacuum tube inside of it is uh, about $5,000 now. <laughs> it's it's incredibly expensive and ridiculous.
0: So you said you were working with electrical audio. Is there any
2: other recording studios that you helped set up well yeah the uh so when uh, when electrical audio opened up uh, i was still only 19 or 20 years old and it was kind of a struggle to try to convince bands to record with me at a place that at the time cost uh, There was two studios and it was like 600 and 800 a day in each in one or the other studio and then there'd be like a another engineer fee on top of that so like it was sort of tough to convince people that they you know should invest a bunch of money in a in me
0: how so as people that don't know how long does it typically take to record an album i guess how long does it typically take so how many days would it be
2: it varies on it really depends on the budget of the band so like for the most of the bands that record at our studio are independent bands that are you know self-made and they have independent labels and either they're paying it for it all by themselves or another label that you know has a has sort of a tight budget so typically a full record for a normal band of people that have written all their music and are coming in to just play and record it that will be anywhere from like five days to two weeks two weeks being on the longer end uh, we have occasionally had like a couple you know old-fashioned big label bands where they just block out the studio for three months and I've done a couple of sessions where it's just crazy like a three month long session where you're that's what you're doing for a quarter of the year and but typically the bands that come in are are two weeks or less. And usually it's like five days. And And it used to be a little bit more in solid chunks, like in the 90s and in the early 2000s, people would come in and the only time they could actually record the record was while we, while they were at the studio, which seems like it obvious. But basically the only time they had access to a 24 track, like a two inch tape machine where all the everything was recorded to was like at the recording studio, as opposed to now where you can do the line share of recording at the studio with all the nice microphones, the nice rooms and all the instruments, but you don't have to burn a lot of the time working out like parts, like tambourine parts and backup vocals and other non-essential sort of like parts that would take up lots and lots and lots of hours in a session typically. People can actually grab those sessions in a digital workstation and go home and do those overdubs themselves because all you need's like a microphone and a quiet space and usually every band has some place that they can go either their practice space or their apartment and they can do those like time consuming like overdubs which people, you know, tend to work out ideas. And the culture has sort of shifted like from when I started, like everything had to happen in the studio, start to finish, and you're paying kind of like a a lot of money to do it to now, whereas you get like a lot of it done in the studio, but you can do more of it at home. And then you just sort of, you just have like a more piecemeal sort of getting the job done as opposed to getting it all done in one fell swoop. And so it's really sort of changed how people schedule themselves in the studio. And it's kind of an interesting thing, especially growing up and getting older and valuing your own time. (laughs) There's a, you know, like when I was younger, everybody, everybody was like doing 14 hour, 16 hour sessions, You know a day you know you just sort of do it until the thing was done and you pass out just from exhaustion and now there's just no thankfully there's no urgency like you can you can come back later and do it or do it like at you know another spot and all you literally need to do is have a computer and have an interface and some nice microphones and you can get your like bassoon part recorded (laughs) like if you wanted to do random stuff and i can't tell if that's good because i'm older or if it's good because it's just generally good. I think it's good that, you know, I don't know, you're you're doing 8 and 10 hour and 12 hour days as opposed to 12, 14 and 18 hour days <laughs> as you might imagine, I don't know. But uh back to your original question is like uh, I would do a lot more recording at my like so I, I bought a house on the south side of Chicago where it was super cheap to buy a house for the explicit reason of just have a studio built in the basement where i could record bands for really cheap and just keep on plowing through and recording bands and the options at the time in chicago was you would you would either be renting a loft with like four other people and then two years later they'd kick you out and build a condo out of it uh, and all of your work would be thrown away or you'd you know go to a practice space where it'd be really loud all all the other bands practicing and stuff and um, but I, I chose to find a, a house that I could afford on $26,000 a year in the middle of nowhere in the South side of Chicago where, you know, it was safe. It was just way out of the way. <laughs> um, and so I lived there for about 15 years and recorded tons of bands down there and I set it up to be compatible with electrical and other studios where I I could do the heavy duty basic tracks of like drums, guitars, and, all the heavy-duty stuff, add electrical, and get all it done, and then we take the reels to my house and do all the super time-consuming, like vocal overdubs and and other random experimental stuff. And so, we wouldn't have to. You, know, you could make a two thousand or three thousand dollar record budget stretch, you know, a week or two. You know, at the time I was basically charging very little. I don't remember exactly, but that way I could like make a better record without breaking the bank and also without turning them away basically if they could make the record that they wanted to make but it also meant that i needed to buy a bunch of compatible gear like a big old two inch 24 track and big old console and and enough microphones to match the quality of the fancy studio and the way i went about that is to scour for broken gear that was good but broken (laughs) and figure out how to and learn how to how to Cut my teeth on how to fix that stuff, basically like um here I am with this thing, how you know I need to learn everything inside and out about this thing to make it work right. And I know when it's working right, it's like a full on professional piece of equipment that people got a loan to buy back in the you know when it was brand new. And that was kind of with a lot of help from a lot of different people in the audio tech community, I got I got through a lot of that stuff. It was great. Was that just
1: a lot of uh, Google searching and and learning pre Google. <laughs>
0: I don't say it's oh pre Google yeah. <laughs> pre Google yeah
2: yeah. I mean like it was like you know the early aughts and uh, I bought the house in 1999 and had a severe broken tape machine addiction. I had a girlfriend at the time that like I'm pretty sure I drove her out of the house. Because like the living room was full of this graveyard of professional fancy tape machines that were in various states of disrepair and or disassembly, but uh, like you know at that time there wasn't you know you'd, there'd be like the specialists that work on this one machine and a spe- another specialist that worked on this other machine and you'd sort of make friends with them over the phone and you know some of them were great and unbelievably generous with their time and other ones just understandably didn't have the time, <laughs> but uh, it made me try to do the same with other people asking for my help Uh, because I remember calling Mike Spitz who ran a company in Pennsylvania that refurbishes this old Ampex tape machine and rebuilds them from the ground up as brand new machines. He would take the time, he would take like 30 minutes of his time and just talking me through a problem that I had on this one machine that I bought from Canada that was broken pretty much Every aspect of it was broken, as I found out later, and it was like a parts machine to help fix other machines. But the guy I bought it from lied to me and said it was like I don't know. It seems uh, doesn't seem to turn on. Like you know something dumb like oh the fuse is broken. It's like yeah. (laughs) Every single thing on that machine was broken. You mean <laughs> it, wasn't, it
0: wasn't broken, it was just missing? Oh, that sucks. It,
2: it was <laughs> no, it was every, everything, it had all the cards in it and it had all the pieces and parts, but uh, yet yeah, not one of them was doing what it was supposed to do. And like, I remember talking to Mike Spitz, this guy who ran this refurbishment company, he's like, it's like, where did you go to get this thing? He's got, he got suspicious after like I had problems with everything. <laughs> he's like, where did you get this thing? I'm like, I went to this guy and outside of Toronto. He's like, oh, is his name Barry? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah, all right. Well, you you got fucked. <laughs> it's like, it's like He's <laughs> like, because he, you know, knew where all these machines were and who owned them all and who, you know, and he obviously dealt with this guy before. And it's like, it's like, you got to, you got to call me before you buy a machine. You're going to you know, end up in this situation. He's like, all right, well, you got yourself a learner's kit. So let's, let's, <laughs> let's see what you can do with it. And fortunately, you know, that particular machine, most machines, most fancy professional audio equipment most of that stuff comes with enough information to keep it sustained, you know, like, you know, like an old car where it'd tell you how to fix everything in an old car. And you had a manual that was like six inches thick and a lot of good drawings. And this one had like a chapter called theory of operation. And it was, I don't know how many pages it's a giant chunk of the manual. And it describes every little facet of what, how it does what it does, which is great. It was amazing. Like there isn't, there aren't too many things you can buy now that where it just like teaches you how it works and you know like this is what this diode is doing and this is why we have like four capacitors surrounding this thing and this is why this is so close to that and then it shows you a picture of what it's doing you know it was was great it was a great little learner's kit like you said but uh yeah so i had a tape tape machine addiction
0: (laughs) I, i like how even back then that person knew about this other machine that you bought like, somehow. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
0: he definitely. Because you all think it's like, it's such, you know, because that was probably around the era of, like, where forms were still the thing. But it's, it was still, like, the internet back then, for people who don't know, was, was really fragmented. Reddit wasn't a thing. Social media wasn't a thing. It so it was like, you had, that would have to be on a particular form that that person read that on and knew about this machine that Greg bought. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And yeah, and it's a small world like people looking for that same specific machine, like a lot of people, you know, like if they're up for sale, a lot of people like are instantly aware of like, you know, who's selling it. And it's kind of like now where if you're, you know, looking on a eBay and there's Reverb, which is the audio version of eBay, you'll know if something's up for sale and like you know, some people in the know know where those machines had been beforehand and <laughs> and but yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I I actually, I think I found, I think it was during eBay's time. I think that's how I discovered it. So it was like the first days of eBay. That's kind of how I discovered this one machine.
1: Also, gigantic manuals with theories of operation. I I absolutely love those. But oh, yeah. they're a complete nightmare to write those documents and to maintain those documents. And so that's probably a, a, a huge reason why businesses don't do those nowadays.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's technical writing is no joke. <laughs> like, especially if you're trying to talk to like, I don't know. I I think that they just had the, you know, the, this old company Ampex that existed for a long time. And, you know, they were the main, they made video recording, mach, video tape machines that, you know, were used everywhere and and an analog tape machines that were used everywhere. And, You know, they must have had hundreds of employees, and this was like the norm. Of course, you're going to explain to who bought it, like how it works, and like have every, you know, everything blown up, and you know that's that's why they're buying this thirty thousand dollar machine. and getting the whole package, and you know, in nineteen eighty dollars.
1: So here's a a practical question for you. So you've had experience setting up a variety of different Mm -hmm. um, studios. So so on on a practical side, what are some things to take into consideration when setting up a studio? Are there electrical considerations? Are there room considerations? Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah. Um, so when people are looking around for a place to open a studio, it's definitely the ideal situation is you're getting a building in the middle of a farm somewhere out in the middle of nowhere <laughs> because you know there's no trains, there's no radio stations, there's no traffic, no thumping noises, and that would be the ideal, but obviously everybody lives close to people (laughs) most people live close to people and want to live close to people and a lot of people want to be in the city and and run a studio in the city uh so yeah there's lots of considerations most of the time most of the studios that i help get started or wire or help design were in cities and in old cities and so they're trying to buy they bought an old building and it's got old infrastructure and usually they're sort of gutting it and they're, they're just using the shell of the building and starting over. That's the best situation. And they can start with a new electrical service and a new, a build. like a building within a building is an idea. the idea that you want to have this mechanical isolation from the exterior uh, so that whatever happens outside, you know, shakes the, the old building walls and it doesn't transmit to the interior rooms where the studio actually is. And same thing vice. you know, you don't want like super loud amplifiers bothering the neighbors. So you have like the rooms inside mechanically isolated from the, the larger mother structure. And in a way, you want to kind of have the same sort of thinking when you're laying out the electrical work. You want to keep the recording studio sort of bifurcated from the air conditioning and the regular shop lights and all the regular, you, you know, utilitary sort of electrical sort of work in the building. And there's a couple of ways people do that, and one thing you kind of need is a, a great reference to ground, you know, so you have a clean connection for your ground connections because there's going to be about a you know hundreds of pieces of equipment all interacting and connected together, and you want to have just the basics sort of taken care of, you want to have um. Electrical circuits running in conduit together, and not you know being split off to be used and you know for lighting as well as like your uh, computer or console or interface electrical. You you want to have it all laid out specifically for circuits that are involved with the outboard equipment and other stuff. And we did that pretty extravagantly at electrical. And I kind of used that as the kind of template to go by. All the outlets in the studio have isolated grounds going to a 10-foot ground stake in in the ground underneath the building. That's got conductive salts sort of poured in with the pipe. And it's like kind of the best reference to Earth in our neighborhood, which is good and bad. It was bad because other people were grounding themselves through us through the plumbing (laughs) like so they come in (laughs) our next door neighbor had a lithography pressing you know print shop kind of thing with this 100 foot long machine uh press printing machine and their you know 80 year old company was had 80 year old wiring and you know they had the same plumbing that connected the plumbing that was connected to our plumbing and so we would get a lot of ground current coming through our plumbing to our ground stake and you know we discovered that after a certain point and isolated ourselves from the neighborhood but uh like that was just like a a problem that we didn't foresee that came up
1: so so you would pick up your neighbor's machine's ground noise through your ground would that just manifest as excess noise
2: as electromagnetic noise and which is really a problematic for guitars and guitar pickups so like you'd you'd be you know in a room and you'd hear like a we had a specific problem for a little while where they're just you'd have a guitar which just had a magnetic pickup to pick up the guitar strings the electric guitar strings plugged into an amp with a ton of gain and so for a little while during business hours we would get a faint and that would happen every like <laughs> every eighty seconds or so so basically that was i believe an ink warming heater that was plugged into an outlet miswired in the neighbor's building and then broadcast and they probably had the neutral and ground swapped <laughs> Yuck. yeah exactly the neutral was probably connected to the steel studs of the freshly you know framed out crappily framed out office space they had and it would just broadcast like you know the like current going through a conductor broadcast a magne- magnetic field and it would be picked up by a guitar with a ton of gain on its amplifier and, and it was a big problem and we finally found it out just by like walking we made this sniffer which was a broomstick with a guitar pickup on the end of it plugged into a battery amplifier and i would be walking around the the block with this thing aiming it at different spots and you know trying to discover a null you know and uh and eventually like it led us to our neighbor's building and they were nice enough to let us inside a couple of times but it like it would never reveal itself we'd be just sniffing around all the time and then the last time we were there we were there while, while they shut off everything and they shut everything down one by one And they just like shut off the fuses at the circuit the breaker box and uh shut off the breakers and event and like we'd be standing in the room all the machines were quiet this loud print press machine room was just dead quiet and it was just me kind of sweating it out with this nice with this guy who was being kind of patient with me <laughs> and like and it's like, all right. And we hear it. We still hear it. It's like, ah, oh, man, what are we like? Where is this thing coming from? We're like just frustrated. And uh, he's like, all right, sorry. You know, I'm, you know, sorry. I have to go now. And we're like, OK, I, we understand. And he just like casually walks past and shuts off like one last breaker that kills the noise in mid noise. And and I start freaking out I'm like, what what, 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 what is that? And he's like, what? It was a, <laughs> And it was like the the office space, the new office space. They just like shut off the entire office space like every at the end of every day. Like I must have had to reset all the clocks or whatever. But like there was a giant uh Xerox machine slash uh you know printer and it had this ink warming cycle <laughs> and like it was hooked up to an outlet that was miswired and that was it. Out of all the heavy duty stuff, like you know, it was just this stupid office copier printer machine that was causing <laughs> this this sound that I could pick up a block away. It's incredible. And, like, we shut it off and turn it on, like, a half a dozen times to make sure it was that thing and it was that thing. And it's like, all right, can we just, uh, we'll give you a power strip. Just turn it on when you need to print something. And it's like, yeah, I, we never use that thing. <laughs> it's like, all right.
0: <laughs> That's even worse.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, they ended up moving out and the condo got built in its place anyway, but... Um, that was an exciting thing. Neil Muncy, who wrote the book on studio grounding techniques, and he's from Toronto, we actually got to the point where we hired him before he died to come down and check it out with us. And he brought us, like, a kit of Ghostbuster equipment where like with, like, a, just a hoop-a-choop with, like, coil uh, wrapped around it, and we'd map out the area and triangulate where the sound was coming from. And um, But he had a bad case of gout when he was, you know, when he was there. So it was just sort of like we had to get him a wheelchair and it was kind of hard. It, it's it, Neil Muncy is an amazing brilliant guy. I think we just sort of caught he, we caught him at like kind of the unhealthy moment in his life. <laughs> but it was it was part mm. part of this long saga of getting rid of this buzz noise, but so you want to make sure that you're not next to a printing plant or people that might make become a printing plant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> One thing that wasn't around when we built the place that is now is condos. And like, uh, there used to be just commercial buildings next to us. And there would just be like one business on the left, one business on the right. And that eventually got replaced by a stack of condos on the left and a stack of condos on the right. So we have like 80 new neighbors, all of which have, you know, flat screen TVs and computers and switch mode power supplies. All that stuff is just like thrown on to the, our power drop, you know, whereas before it was just like two companies, and so that was kind of a, a thing that we were a little bit worried about. But we sort of planned ahead by designing in a, a uh, isolation transformer just for the studio uh, electrical service. So we got a 240 to 120 drop transformer. And basically it works as a nice low pass filter where just like everything out in the street you know, is only efficient roughly at around 60 hertz. I mean, it's not perfect, but, uh, but it sort of self filters out all that noise. On the way into our building, which is kind of nice and and a really crude description of how the benefits are, but it also traps the noise that we make on our side, like within our little ecosystem too, so that can create new problems. But fortunately, we don't. We have a lot of like normal, old school linear power supplies for all the gear we use, and so it's not like there's crazy stuff happening, or at least not yet. (laughs) But yeah, so just learning from that, like I've sort of applied that to other studios where I go to, where like. Just be real disciplined about, like, your routing of the electrical work and where the circuits go and, like, the grounding. And these are all things that no one wants to hear when they're building a studio. They're they're talking about the rooms and they want it to, like, have, like, you know, whatever wood finish, like, barn wood finish and all that sort of stuff. And they want it to inspire the artists. Exactly. And it's very hard to convince them they should spend thousands of dollars that they didn't anticipate (laughs) a a grounding rod surrounded by what was it what kind of salt some sort of conductive like it's like a conductive salt solution that's supposed to mate well with the wet clay that's right underneath our building to conduct to the to the copper pipe and it's yeah it's literally 10 feet tall and we had to auger it down is it's pretty amazing looking and that goes to a big bus bar, and then. It works as a star ground for the whole building. It goes to the two different breaker panels for the two different studios, and then you know it's it's pretty cool. No one's really doing that, but but you can you don't have to go that far. You just have to like pay attention to the routing of your wiring and not have like a daisy chain scenario where like one outlet in one room is like one hundred feet of wiring uh, further away from the box than the other outlet in the other room. You want it to kind of star out as opposed to be kind of like um like a house where you just run from outlet to outlet for like a circuit because a lot of times people connect things together like an amplifier will be in one room but the guitarist and his pedal board and all this other equipment will be in another room and they'll be connected together and there'll be a big ground loop uh, between those two locations and that'll that'll manifest itself in a lot of noise (laughs) and there'll be ways to you can either wire it right or you could buy any number of products that are built to sort of mitigate that specific problem. It's like, there's a lot of Band-Aid products for studios that are based around people wiring a studio incorrectly or people building studios in a house and not really, you know, caring about that sort of stuff, but yeah.
1: How about uh, balance power? Have you ever worked with
2: that? Yes, there's, there's balance power at Electrical Audio. That's the first time I'd heard of it. And... It's since that point, it's not been that as necessary. If you do the routing of the electrical work, like if you pay attention to that and you don't share neutrals and do other things that electricians like to do, you could get similar results. But the basic idea is it forces you to run your live and neutral together for every circuit. So they're never separated, they're always like together in the same pipe. And there's one to one ratio of like live and neutral always. And that just cancels its own like magnetic field uh interfer- like interference generating. Like the, the the noise that it generates, it gets it's it's a lot less than if you were, you know, a little more sloppy about like, you know, sharing neutrals and doing stuff you can get away with in a house or an apartment or something. But uh, but as far as like it being balanced versus not balanced, I don't think I think they figured out that that's not as important. But the fact that it is balanced forced the electricians to act in a certain Way Like to not cheat, basically. And so you end up with these really quiet, clean electrical runs that, again, in the recording studio, it's all guitar pickups. And a lot of the things can pick up like a magnetic field and cause a lot of noise and be a real big issue, annoying issue.
1: Yeah, I've, I've, I've looked at uh, balanced power just from a theoretical standpoint and i've always wondered if there is enough benefit to justify the cost because at the end of the day it it ends up being just a gigantic transformer that can handle whatever the load is that you're looking at down the line so you you size it based off of that but it the the price it's it's not a cheap thing to get into let's put it that way so i just didn't know if it was if your opinion was it's so great you got to do it or yeah sounds more like just just do your wiring correct and <laughs> you'll be fine. Yeah,
2: yeah. I think we were getting the isolation transformer and that was already happening, so like uh to to be balanced it wasn't that big of a shift from there on because it was all fresh new wiring and I think the idea was like it could if it if it does have an if it does have a benefit will, we'll just take advantage of that. That'd be great. Because at the time it was all fresh new stuff we were installing anyway and we're going to do it, you know, the right way so which was going to be already expensive and the actual transformer itself was remarkably cheap but uh the electricians having to do two wire dual circuit breakers for everything that was like a little out of their wheelhouse and so (laughs) they did a great job but it's like it's just an interesting thing that the panel is like twice as big because everything's a dual breaker like a like a 240 type breaker and But yeah, it's, it's, we haven't generated our own problems. (laughs) So that's, that's, that's a sign that at least something worked. Most any of the noise and electrical problems have all been exterior to the building, but yeah, it's, I don't think it's a full on snake oil thing. I think it's just a, it's, it may not be as beneficial as what they're originally advertising or talking about, but there's plenty of snake oil stuff out there for sure.
0: So before the podcast uh, we were kind of chatting about designing electronics So what kind of like custom stuff have you developed for studios, like recording equipment, that kind of stuff?
2: So there's a lot of random little things that come up that are like really stone cold dumb that for some reason people don't just have already. Like there's a direct box is a thing that every studio has. Like you plug in your guitar or bass into this box and there's usually a transformer or a a solid state amplifier that converts the high impedance instrument signal to a low impedance microphone kind of signal and balances it so you can run it down a long cable back to the mic preamp in the console. That's like a typical normal thing the studios have and and uh, live venues always have. But they don't normally have like a connection that sort of goes the other direction to make it easier to go to the other direction so you can go from you know, the console to a guitar amplifier, for instance, or, uh, you know, a microphone, which is a low impedance output. You can convert that. It's handy to convert that to a high impedance signal, so you can plug it into a guitar amp and or, or guitar pedals and affect things in a cool way. And so we thought that this was like a handy feature. And there's other sort of handy tools you could use it for with just having simple male and female XLR connector which is a microphone connector on the same box on the same side of the transformer the low impedance side of the transformer and just use it as an up and down you know conversion box and that's just like something that like we built in house because we didn't see anything out there that was like it and uh, we ended up like starting to sell those things which is kind of interesting. But, and there's other things like using a, a microphone technique, which is called mid-side. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's sort of like the way stereo was originally conceived of by a guy named Alan Bloomline in England, who was kind of a genius, who came up with a bunch of different inventions and did a lot of research in radar. But uh, he came up with the... I think he came up with the mid-side... or uh, with you know, like some indifference mid-side stereo. And the idea is you have a microphone that's facing directly towards a drum kit, for instance, or whatever your source is. So have a mono microphone pointed directly at the drum kit. And then uh, you have a bi-directional microphone pointed like 90 degrees to the left. And when you sum those two together, the positive side of the bidirectional mic adds together with the mid-microphone and gives you a little bit of a repre- uh, over-representation of what's going on on the left side while canceling out what's going on on the right side. So the two together kind of make up a, a left image. And then if you add the mid microphone to the polarity reversed side microphone, it'll boost up the right-hand side and cancel out the left-hand side. So between... The two, you would have a left-right image that was very great and clear and used uh, the fidelity of that mid-microphone, the good fidelity of that mid-microphone. And the whole appeal of it was in an era where mono was so prevalent and popular, you wanted to have something that was compatible with mono and stereo. And this was handy because if you sum those finalized channels together to mono, the side microphone disappears because you're adding a phase-flipped version of the side microphone to the regular version. And so that side microphone cancels out completely, and all you're left with is that mid-microphone pointed directly at the drum kit. So it was a convenient, clever way to you know, have stereo be compatible with mono, but it also sounds fantastic as far as using that concept and for stereo miking. So it's a really, really good, clean way to pick up things in stereo but the but it's not so popular because you need to do this process where you have three channels on the console one was in the mid microphone and panned in the middle and then you have uh two faders that are the side microphone panned left and then panned right and uh those side channels have to be exactly the same volume and they kind of have to be at the fixed you know level and it's kind of janky if you have a Two week long session, you don't want those faders being bumped, and you know, if something happens or if there's some drift in the gain, it'll ruin the balance a little bit. So it's a it's it's not a popular thing because it took it was sort of cumbersome to set up. So we just like built this box that does all that internally. And you can control the side microphone uh level just with like one pot and it'll always be perfectly matched. And we just made that box because no one was making it in the year nineteen ninety-eight or nineteen ninety-nine or two thousand. And we made like a, just a few for the studio and a few for like the people close to us, and didn't have any aspirations to sell them. And then eventually, I'm like, "Well, oh, this is easy enough. We could just make them for people if they want." And so I just made, you know, a board, <laughs> a PC board, and and then we've been sort of like trickle selling them ever since. And since then, people have like started incorporating that concept in like other products that you can buy. And so I think like. We have all these kind of like cool ideas that we use for our studio. And, you know, people, when they come through, it's like, that's awesome. That's fun. or That's cool. But we're all too busy recording bands and doing the stuff that we're doing to become a like a manufacturing company. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Or a product place.
2: Right. Right. So
0: uh, what's interesting, what you just talked about there is you made your own PCB board. So what was the process like that? I want to dig more in there because that's actually like what I do for a living. Oh yeah. yeah, design hardware and that kind of stuff. So this was around what, like,
2: two thousand? You said, yeah, two thousand. I made that the side board uh, in about uh, like two thousand four. But how did you design the board? So the uh, there's a couple of different board programs that I I got out of a catalog from a, a magazine. I think like audio electronics something i think it that it was like a very basic name <laughs> so so boring and basic i can't tell if i'm even saying it right but uh uh yeah it was like you know design your own pc boards and like you know you get like a floppy disk and it's just this so software out from a magazine
0: which is yeah by the way gonna blow everyone's mind listening to, well maybe not everyone because we have uh <laughs> some people our age but like that's a concept that people couldn't fathom nowadays yeah Getting no, a floppy to, drive out of a like add out of the back of a magazine like a Poplar Mechanics. Yeah,
2: just one, <laughs> one layer board. Maybe it did two layer boards. I'm not sure. Then it, I then I graduated to another board program that I got the CD-ROM for and that was the one that I was using Ooh, fancy. Yeah, real fancy and I liked it until like you know I they disappeared. I can't I can't recall their name, but I uh, could actually do two layers with that one. And it had quite a library of generic parts and um and I would just sit there and like either print it out on um this transfer sort of like uh heat transfer pages and oh, I yeah. just iron it onto a copper clad board and then like, you know, poison a bunch of fish by etching it and <laughs> Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I even tried to do a double sided board once that way and it is kind of a it worked, but it was it, when, once I started doing it, I realized like, oh, you just don't do this.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah no, no, that was the exact same thing as uh I etched my first couple of boards and then realized, oh, I can just pay money to someone and <laughs> they can make me boards.
2: Yeah, yeah, like uh I just like, Oh, this they can line it up perfectly on the top and bottom. Like I don't need to <laughs> like, yeah. I can't do that. Or sit there and drill out all the all the vias. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Been there. I actually made a board, a jig that was like a, out of plywood and two by sixes that had an angle on it. And it was like, just for drilling out circuit board holes for all the stuff. Like, it's like, this is easier than trying to do it another way. And like, I still have that thing for some reason, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, once, uh, advanced circuits had like, a uh, three PCBs for like 66 bucks deal prototype deal, like no mass. Oh yeah. I remember that all that sort of stuff. I started just using that all the time. And, and that was great that was fun i had one version of that mid-side matrix board was i had made was all mirrored like the entire board was mirror imaged like somehow the gerber was pretty, and this was before you could see your gerber after you generated a gerber file you couldn't see what it looked like unless you had like a, some great software or something which i didn't have
0: yeah you had to basically because you emailed
2: them over probably so it's like just wishing that it was fine yeah exactly and like hoping that and every subsequent one so they sent me the pc boards and there's like a five pc board deal or something and it was all reverse like mirror image and i'm like why didn't you tell me these like the silkscreens backwards <laughs> like you could see that couldn't you <laughs> like yeah. and so like all my notes afterwards like please check to see if the writing is correct like not in reverse <laughs> you know and like this thing it should be an upper left and i mean i was totally like you know caveman style like they didn't want to deal with me it's like who's a kid. Like, <laughs> like
0: so how did you like did you just self-teach yourself the soft the software programs?
2: Yeah, exactly. And I would do as little as I could to get away with what I needed to do. And I still do that now. I like like I use Eagle. I still I use like an eight year old version of Eagle. I'm like Eagle five or six right now. That's, That's why older, older than
0: eight, by the way. Now
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, uh, I, I accidentally downloaded the, uh, a newish one and it will open if I just click on the the board file and I don't have the license for it. So like it, you know, I can look at it, but I can't do anything else with it. And,
0: oh wait. So the newer version Eagle, you have to have a subscription
2: for. Yeah. I bought like the, I don't know if it's like a, this exists, but it seemed like the semi pro version where I could build like a board that was like, you know, 20 inches by some odd, some other dimension and, Uh, And that was like $500 like in 10 years ago or something like that. And I split it with the studio and I use it and the studio uses (laughs) it or I use it at the studio. But um, but yeah, now I'm I can't get rid of my computers because there's nothing. Now they have like a subscription based thing. Now you can it's going to be all Fusion 360, which that's their plan, I guess. Yeah. For someone who uses it uh, seldom. If I was doing it every day, obviously it would make sense. And Fusion 360 would be great to have all that stuff but i like i don't know that i would take advantage of nearly a like i like i was about to say like i have what i think is already too much for my my needs like with the 5.9 version of eagle yeah yeah. i don't even like i don't even do the schematic tie-in because the parts aren't the same and like i just make my board and then i make my schematic and Those are totally dis- separate, discrete things from each other. <laughs> there's nothing in common. I'll make my own library parts, and I'll just like, I'll do what I need to do to get the the part on the board. And there's no communication between like the board and the schematic. And it's like, uh, like I said, I'm just like clobbering caveman style through this this whole process. And
0: no, Greg, that's how I was when I first started. It was uh, I was using a software called maybe this will bring memories. I guess it was called Free PCB. A piece of software. Oh, okay, yeah. But th- that was one. It was it was free back in that time period. But it was that you didn't have a schematic, so it was like you you would make your own net list of like where all the pins on your board would connect in uh-huh. Notepad, <laughs> and then and then you would attach them to like the footprints in the layout tool. Oh wow, I'm I'm really curious what the software you were using back in like oh4 was, and if if uh, one of our listeners knows what that kind of software was like, like that era was like, let us know for sure.
2: Yeah, I had failing to remember it. I know that they generate files that had a suffix BRD, just like, just like Eagle you know, did then. Just like Eagle does. And I was like, oh, I wonder if I could open my because I designed a bunch. I wonder of- if it was like Express PCB. That sounds familiar, but that seems so generic that I don't... Everything sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah.
0: And Expressive PCB was, like, also, like, you built... It was, like, a free PCB CAD tool. I guess it's still free. But it was, like... This one's a, gone. Yeah, it was associated with their Fab House. So, like, okay. you bought through
2: them. Okay. Yeah, this this one was all by itself, and uh it died out, and there was no support for it at some And, like, a but yeah, it didn't have any tie-ins to like any I think it was just a company that existed for that and it disappeared again. <laughs> like but I did so much stuff with it that I'd like like there's a power supply I made for tube microphones that has a soft start kind of feature in it that turns on the heater first and after a minute the B plus the high tension voltage comes up slowly and it and it worked really well. And um I don't want to redesign the whole board. <laughs> but it was something I made in that that old obsolete software, and like I'm just gonna have to like literally look at the physical board and try to retrace my <laughs> steps. Like,
1: yeah.
2: and have like a printout, like a folder with a printout. It's like, it's like this should be a little easier somehow. Like, <laughs> but it does go to show, like I don't know if this happened, if this is gonna happen much in the future, but like just the fickle fickleness of uh, software, and like you know. You have to be careful because some things just won't be able to, you don't have access to anymore. Like a lot of digital recording formats are like that too. Like there's a ton of stuff that was recorded on this, these formats that you cannot play back anymore. And it's like, that's just lost to the universe. (laughs) (laughs) Like a mini disc. Like mini disc or, you know, there's like real reel to reel digital formats that like you can't find a machine and the tapes are sort of like in weird shape. If there's too much errors, it won't actually play. It's like, it's like. I don't
0: know. Oh, so more like, um, well, LaserDisc is analog, at least. But yeah, like, is that what you're talking about? Where like the format is just so obscure and no one supports that piece of hardware anymore?
2: Yeah, it's a proprietary kind of digital recording format that, you know, like in the late 70s, early 80s and and into the 90s, people were just hadn't figured out, like, you know, exactly what standards to use and hadn't agreed on those standards. And so they just had their own version of it. And if you didn't have the machine to play it back, it won't play back. But it's kind of like that PC, bo- not that my tube power supply is going to save the world, but <laughs> like I won't be able to go back and add that diode that needed to be there. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, I just did my uh, first multi-layer board, which we can talk about this later. But like when I was ordering these things, I was like, I was a major investment to me, hundreds of dollars to find out whether I did okay. <laughs> it's like hey, it sent it off. <laughs> it's like all right, it's this gamble. I did try to do all my homework, and then it'd show up It'd be like reversed, and it'd be like all right, it still worked. That's the funny thing about that board is it still worked perfectly. It was just all the it was upside down and also mirrored. And so somehow the routing still worked because the layers I don't, it just worked out. And uh, but I think those are kind of cool things. But now you can look at everything before you actually place an order for stuff, which is probably the way it should be. <laughs>
1: huh. Now most of the places show you your board before you even press buy.
2: Yeah, the three D like virtual board, like a you know we made we made fifty boards of that mid side matrix board. And I don't remember how, how many hundreds of dollars that was, uh, but it was several hundreds of dollars. And now I do like all my prototyping through a Chinese company that has to be just stealing IP. Like it's just, a you know, it can't be right. They're just so cheap. Like, like I, I just would price out these things that would be like $700 and be like $12. <laughs> it'll be here next week. <laughs> And uh, But yeah, that's one company, you upload your Gerbers and you just look at it like it's a, a real thing in front of your face. And it's like, this is incredible. And they'll even do like assembly and surface mount stuff. And it's like, there's no way this is worth it. Like they must be trying to, you know, they're hoping that someone at Raytheon is trying out an idea. <laughs> and <laughs> and they're, someone's going to put it together. It's like, oh, this is like a radar <laughs> or something weird.
0: This is the control software for a Javelin missile. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah exactly and he, he didn't get approval for the prototype so he's trying it on his own now but yeah
0: yeah yeah so i have some so this is not really so how much like recording do you do like not in a studio
2: uh not much it's usually in one some studio one way or another it's a studio there's a couple times we'll be the doing studio it at it's our world <laughs> It is my world or I have, I do go to people's like houses sometimes if like they have like access to a really nice piano in someone's house or, or even if it's like a a weird location, like a a warehouse that someone has access to and it has a cool sound and the drums sound really cool. And so they want to record it in there. And so I'll just bring like a, my trusty Motu that never breaks. (laughs) Yeah. No, like a. I used to bring that thing around in a bunch of microphone preamps and then plug, you know, just capture everything raw, not being able to hear everything, just trusting like where the mic placement is and all that stuff and just hitting record and then coming back and seeing what happens. And I I used to record one of the stages at the Pitchfork Festival for like five years or so. And that was kind of interesting and chaotic. And I'm glad I'm not really doing it anymore. It's It's a whole other kind of like form of chaos that I don't need to introduce in my life where <laughs> thunderstorms will happen. It's like, Oh yeah, that happens. I forgot <laughs> it's pouring rain everywhere. Yeah. Cause I guess my question is um,
0: I do a lot of like photography for automotive, but I like to record cars like the sounds oh, cool. they make. Cause I think that's probably the more, more interesting, I guess. Cause that's actually something that he can come across that lo- as it's really hard to capture like a car going fast and it, trying to show it goes fast but if you hear it going fast is a different thing yeah and uh i'm trying to figure out how to make that recording sound great because you, you one you, a lot of times you're like you're either in a parking lot or you're on the side of a mountain so there's not there's not a studio right and most time like if you use like a cell phone or whatever it's just always blown out or right it doesn't really capture the actual I want to say like a motion of the engine, I guess, is a good way to put it. The the essence. The essence, yeah.
2: Yeah. That bass. I mean like it's impossible to it's almost impossible to imagine unless you're like sitting there in front of something moving. Like it's like a train engine. Yeah. Um like, I don't know if you've like heard a train engine start, like for the first time. It's just like <laughs> just like this deep, like bass <laughs> sub that just like shakes your body and like <laughs> and then, it's like there's nothing else, on, unless an earthquake or a volcano. There's just nothing that does that, and there's no way to like produce that again. Like it seems, and but yeah, like uh, there's definitely some fully microphones that like are made, and you get like a nice huge windscreen, and it's a stereo mic that can take like 150 decibels and get yeah. it all um i bought a sample for a project a client of mine bought a sample packet of machine gun and explosion sound effects um that were all like you know recordings for probably video games but yeah it was was pretty interesting like you can't capture the grandeur of you know like taking pictures of like a grand canyon it's like so impossible it's so hard to capture the grandeur (laughs) it's like the same thing it's like you hear like a a shotgun it's like (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's like exactly <laughs> it's not like what you think and then but they'll do it with like six you know they'll do it with an array of microphones at different da- distances and like if, when you put them together they sound like oh okay that sounds kind of like a gun yeah instead of like a like a snap pop kind of thing
0: i guess that's um, more of giving like a little like depth for lack of better terms like a 3d depth to the sound then
2: yeah and capturing the environment that it's in too like you if you're in a city, it's all bouncing off the walls and you know, off the walls of the buildings and re- reverberating. And even if you're out in, like, the country and there's hills and you get all that reverb and echo and it just adds to it. And But really capturing that sub, people, like, that's just a thing that you can't translate so, is so well, like outside of a giant movie theater or something. It's like that, that low rumble, chest-like pounding kind of... Uh, sub bass that comes with like an engine or a rocket <laughs> it's a <laughs> yeah it's a really hard thing to reproduce it's really hard it's like you know it's you have to come up with like a an amalgamation that'll like be a this is what it you know it sh- sort of sounds like but you're listening to it on your laptop so it's not going to sound exactly like yeah you know, yeah, yeah it should
0: i wonder if, if what you're saying with like 3d i wonder if setting up like like two like one mic that's like farther away from you When when you're actually recording, like the video part of it, Uh I mean, I guess I could probably like go online and start seeing what other people are doing that are actually making really good videos of cars and stuff like that. But yeah, it was just something I thought about before the podcast started.
2: No, yeah, I would. would, If I mean, if you have the flexibility, like having like four tracks, like you have like a stereo mic right up on the subject, and then like some way back you know a pair of microphones sort of you know 20 or 30 feet away you know facing down at it or omnidirectional and just catching what it catches yeah that little bit of delay you know tells your brain that there's an environment happening Mm -hmm. and as long as the mics and the preamps can take the 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 hit yeah
0: i wonder if like a uh figuring out how to do, like, a wireless setup would work great. I know we're getting way off topic, but... Um, <laughs> That's fine. Because, like, if you, like, let's say you were standing on the side of the road taking the audio, running the wires usually isn't something you can do because you usually don't have a press pass,
2: <laughs> so... <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, could you record it, like, just natively, like, with the uh, whatever you're using and then piece it together later, like, almost have, like, two devices recording?
0: That's what I was thinking, is, like, could you, like maybe have like a wireless mic or someone recording like someone's just standing 30 feet down the track basically Uh and i guess if you just did it in post it would be fine you just have to sync
2: it up yeah yeah i'd just say record it for real the the wireless thing they have their own compressors and other processors that transmit so it'll sound goof i mean like just
0: i'll be like hey steven just hold this like put this mic in your like shirt sleeve yeah
2: yeah, and stand thirty uh, feet that way. Just me- give him like a uh, hockey helmet with a mic taped to the top of it. <laughs> yeah.
1: What? Yeah, no, the 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 helmet that has uh, the, the, the two beers on the side. You can put you can put the two mics on on oh, on there. Just
2: a beer on one side, perfect. and then the mic on the other. Yeah. Oh,
1: beer! Yeah, perfect. Big old
2: shotgun mic <laughs> sticking so out. So you hear like sloshing noises while well. <laughs> burping. <laughs> one thing that I know, like back to the gunshot stuff and explosions. Everything that you thought like an explosion sounds like from movies and TV shows, it's like all wrong. It it sounds cooler with that compressor and the saturation of the recording medium just distorting. It's like, (laughs) it sounds really cool. But if you're out, you know, like it's more, it sounds more like a, like fireworks. Like when you hear a loud firework go off, it's just like a pop kind of thing. And like a super loud pop and explosion. And that's probably more accurate and like the what you're hearing on recordings is typically just distortion, which sounds cooler <laughs> usually. But uh I always think of like it'd be kind of interesting to capture the the actual the actual sound and still have it sound really impressive. I think that would be like a that's like a thing I don't see in movies. It's just like that actual sound happening. And it's like one of those they keep trying to be more realistic and more realistic, especially like war movies, but they don't like they don't get that that detail down. And I wonder if that's like even more of like a tricky thing to do. I'm sure hmm. making it all about because it can't be you can't make a movie with the sound effects being like 80 d 80 dB louder than the dialogue, which is what, you know, in real life, it would kind of be like deafening.
1: I, th- I think I think video games are getting really impressive with it, though. Yeah. With with 3D sound and spatial sound, especially with being able to give the player cues on distance and location it's it's incredible now
2: yeah i i, I would never leave the house if i were grown up now if i was a teenager now i just i'd never <laughs> i'd never walk out that door like at all i'd be like uh i'd you know i'm more comfortable learning at home and i'll do it all zoom and you know <laughs> there's a, whatever excuse i would find i would I'd try to I'd do that it's just it's just it'd be too it's yeah there's too much cool stuff it seems like and like I'm glad I was growing up in an era of Otari and Nintendo is like where I stopped. <laughs> so we talked about a lot about like your past. So what is going forward? What are you currently working on? Actually the, I, so I made a mic preamp. I bought a recording console specifically because there was a, uh, there was a modular building architecture where you can put in your own equalizers and mic preamps and, and, Uh, there's a few options that the company would sell, like to customize your console for like, if you're a broadcast engineer or a recording engineer or rock engineer, you could come up with whatever you piece together, this Frankenstein, just how you like it. And I bought the board because I know I wanted to make my own mic preamps for it. And I'd made a few mic preamps before. I don't know if you're familiar with mic preamps, but the microphone preamps are these really low noise the struggle throughout the years was trying to get like a uh, a really weak signal of a microphone to gain up to a, a line level that can be used in the rest of the studio to be sent to a recorder or a compressor or an equalizer. And sometimes you need like 30 to 50 dB of gain, you know, just to boost this weak signal up to like a usable signal that's strong enough to plug into something else. And so there's there's always been like a struggle to make a quiet, clean, low-distortion amplifier for the microphones and you know that's hard to do and people have come up with different ways of doing it and all those different methods have yielded different sort of sounds like the intrinsic sounds kind of like a guitar amplifier has different sounds depending on like if it's a solid state amplifier or tube amplifier you know that has different topologies it all has different qualities so like a uh, microphone preamp uh it's an ex- it's an expensive sort of tool that you have in the studio and you you like to you know mix and match them and it was one of those things that i couldn't afford when i was starting out so i'd look at uh articles and magazines and other diy magazines and like there'd be discussions and people would come up with ideas and basically i started building mic preamps based on that and then the other application notes for transformers they'd have like their the recommended ways to use their microphone Transformer and I'd end up making other preamps that I did like, and so I with this board I wanted to just make a board full of these preamps that I liked, and I did, and I sold those preamps to a bunch of other people that own the same board, and then I brought that preamp to the studio because there aren't too many transformer-based preamps in one of the two studios at the studio, and we made a preamp that was a rack-mounted preamp, and uh, so now I'm sort of making a version of that rack-mounted preamp to. Fit, uh, a standard modular standard that was started by the console company API, and they have like a modular standard that other companies have adopted and turned into like a, it's turned into a cottage industry of like you get this rack, a card cage kind of thing, and different companies make their own processors that plug in, kind of like a Euro rack, like a Synthi Euro rack, and you know everybody makes something for that. It's got a bipolar power supply and a phantom power for condenser microphones. And uh, a known footprint and layout and limitations, recurrent and stuff. And so people just design their things that'll fit in that rack. And I've been procrastinating making stuff for that for so long. And then a friend of mine who had my console that had sixteen of my preamps, and he sold his console because he's not using his console anymore, but he still wants to use my preamps. And he's like, "Can you make a five hundred API five hundred version of your preamp?" And and it's like, "I'll buy sixteen of them." which was the final light under my butt to get stuff started. And so I just started building that. And then the studio version of that preamp has got a, you know, a little basic EQ on it. And that's got a lot more parts to squeeze on the board. And I've been, I'm on my second version of the board. And it's the first board that I've done a four layer board for, which for some reason I hadn't done that. I mean, I know why I hadn't done it. It was, just, it was an expensive thing to do until like... Now that like prototyping is so cheap, I can actually just do this now. <laughs> it's like insane to me. It's insane. Like this would have been like seven hundred dollars to do before, and now it's like sixty. <laughs> I don't know. That's, yeah. that's pretty awesome. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, so that's that's the thing I'm working on. Literally like yesterday, that was like you know designing the faceplate, and I got that down, and getting the the boards. You know, there's like a run of ten that I'm doing, uh, which is kind of like a beta prototype run, and. That's the most recent thing I've done. There's like for some reason there's a tube microphone that was made in the 50s that everybody's asking me to make them power supplies and cables for out of out of the blue. <laughs> it's an Altec Lansing is a company that made speakers and microphones and other audio products in the 50s and 60s. Like they made a cool tube microphone called the Coke bottle which is just basically a microphone capsule a tube and then just a the body and then it ran down a wire to the power supply which had an output transformer in it um so i made like a stereo version of this thing and a long time ago and i guess someone found out about it and now i'm making like three of them for some reason so <laughs> that's just like a nice have like these weird oddball jobs that i do and like they found
0: the form post from 12 years ago
2: yeah yeah exactly I did. I kept like a blog or I don't know if I'd call it a blog, but like on our message board for the studio, I kept like a a log of repairs that I would do, um, you know, everything that comes up in the studio that it's like a fault. There's a fault log in each studio and you write down like what's wrong. And then on the on the joining page, it would be the solution to that problem. And I sort of did a digital version of that for since 2003. I was keeping that and then some of it got lost in a website rebuild a lot of the data got lost and kind of crippling when i think about it but <laughs> it's like because uh, it was kind of like my weird tech diary
1: oh that sucks
2: yeah yeah i mean i'm trying to rebuild it from like other notes but yeah it's it's too bad it was like seven or eight years of it just down the tubes and then of course it's like the later years so like all the stuff that's prominently up there is like when i was learning <laughs> it's like oh you don't mean like what are you doing that for but uh yeah whatever <laughs> it's like you don't know what this thing is uh, but I'm I'm not that worried about it. It's just a little bit embarrassing. But I think it's worth having like I appreciate having that out there, other people having stuff out there, even if some of it's just like clumsy, like just cause when you Google a piece of equipment and you have a problem someone else has already gone through it, like it's it's so much more of a relief that like you're not the only one dealing with this weird little thing and here's like a here's a thing to try anyways. And that's always kind of like a what I hoped my thing would be, like they'd just Google uh, Studer, a 20 tape machine, uh, power supply dropout. And then I'd have like 10 entries on when that happened to us and what I did to fix it. And hopefully that would help someone else. But, um, that's the whole, that's the whole thing. And then once you get started doing that, you can't stop. But yeah, I I like making, I like designing and making stuff. And, uh, I don't know yet if I like manufacturing stuff. (laughs) It's a, it's, it's, it's a different beast, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, like, learn. We have people at the studio helping, like, you know, we take shifts doing stuff, and we're learning how to do more and more. But it's, like, yeah, it's a whole other beast, and uh, I need, like, I need to go to class for how to make, like, boutique runs of tiny amounts of things. Because, <laughs> like, whenever I look up information, it's, like, okay, this is, like, this is for a company with 40 people working for it. <laughs> it's, like, I, I want to, like... I want the chapter where there's like a a guy who has a terrible idea about a product and wants to invest in you know too much money and like it's in and try to sell only like fifty or a hundred of a thing and it's not gonna be world changing but yeah everything I read everything I'm learning about it's all it's like you need its like a product line for thousands of widgets to be made and <laughs> I know nothing about that stuff
0: well not to advertise the company that i started but macrofab builds like hundreds of things instead of thousands of things that's handy so the company that also sponsors this podcast
2: (laughs) (laughs) i hear great things about macrofab (laughs) insert product placement here (laughs) really where are you located when's your next show no yeah where are you located houston texas Okay, I didn't know. Yeah, where in the region the world you were? You're all mountain time.
1: I, I'm mountain time. I'm actually just down the road from uh, Advanced Circuits. So. Oh,
2: okay, yeah. yeah. Tell them I say hi. They made a wedding favor for me. Oh, cool. I, when I when we got married, I made a circular PC board with like a horizon, hillside horizon, and a river going down with like you know it was like a you know plated river, <laughs> and uh, they just they just they did it for really cheap and as a nice favor to me it was really nice oh, that's cool yeah
1: so Greg where can people uh, learn more about you do you have uh, socials or, or a blog or anything
2: I do have like that the mess- there's a message board off the electrical audio website it's uh, the actual website that it's on is premium dot com. but uh, if you just go to the electrical audio web electrical dot com and there's a forum menu bar you click on and it'll go to the forum that's that's where I have my little tech blog thing, uh, and there's the old version and the new version. That's that's in the, in the tech room. It's called. Um, that's where I keep all my updating, all my techy type stuff. Otherwise, I'm just on Facebook. I'm not, I, have, I have an Instagram account with like a bunch of followers, but I'm don't have any uh, anything like on Instagram yet. Like it's kind of a lot of pressure now. I, now that I haven't done anything for so long, it's like, what am I going to post? I'm going to post like picture of a. Broken microphone or something, but
1: well, thank you so much for uh, joining us, Greg. We really appreciate you uh, coming on.
2: Yeah, no, thanks. It's been it's been great. I'm I like geeking out, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you, Greg. Yeah,
0: it was it was actually a lot of fun talking to someone who started doing like circuit board design in that like early aughts era because that's where I started too. And like the challenges of finding software because you couldn't afford like you. It was like you either paid tons of money for software or like almost nothing back then it was, it was really weird
2: yeah it was like all or nothing like even with eagle i think i was on the weird 40 millimeter limit for a long time uh and i like the learning curves are always like so extreme for me that like i don't know what i'm gonna do if eagle disappears i'm just gonna this computer that i'm just gonna hold on to that forever i'm just gonna keep it working so i can just use this computer and until i can't but yeah. The subscription-based model is taking over the world, and I, until I can justify, I, I don't know. I need to partner up with a bunch of people and need other things that I don't do, and <laughs> <Then laughs> they could they could use the 3D printing stuff, and or I could just learn it and do that. I don't know. I got too many plates spinning, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's yeah. cool. Um, thanks for having me on.
1: Uh, thanks, gang. Greg. Okay, so thank you for listening to Circuit Break. We were your hosts,
0: Stephen Craig and Parker Doman. Take it easy. Thank you, Yes You Are a Listener for downloading and listening to our podcast and making it to the end of the first episode. I guess that's episode four one of the podcast, but it's episode one of it being called Circuit Break. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steve and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at macfab.com. Also, check out our brand new Circuit Break Community Discourse Hub. You can find it at insert URL here.